Hello, and welcome to the Highway to Health show. In today's episode, I am joined by Paige Kinsella. Paige is the creator of the blog ImperfectPage.com, where she shares her journey through autoimmunity, eating disorders, people-pleasing, and codependency, sprinkled with an unhealthy dose of entitled physicians, failed treatments, and chronic perfectionism. In this episode, Paige bears it all. She talks about the shame surrounding her during her lowest moments and how she could not get the help she needed. I always find it very powerful when someone like her, who has gone through all of this, is brave enough to not only come through the other side, but also make it her mission to now look out for others like her and help them shed the shame and get the help they need. I really like this conversation and I have a feeling you will too. Now, before we go on to listen to today's episode, let me remind you that last week I was joined by Lyndall Mastro Thompson. She wrote the book, You Are Not Your Diagnosis, and is the host of a new podcast with the same name. We spoke about patients adopting a diagnosis as their identity and how that affects their recovery and so many other things. If you or someone you love has one of these life-changing diagnoses, make sure to listen to this episode. You will find a lot of very useful information. That was episode 27. Oh, and there's one last thing remaining before we can jump on the fast lane of the highway to health. And that is to remind you that this episode is brought to you by yours truly. As I mentioned in previous episodes, this podcast is really a labor of love, uh, kind of paying forward what I've been fortunate enough to learn from my mentors, from my teachers, and well, my patients. And so I'd like you to help us keep going. And no, not by asking you to donate or by inserting ads or anything like that. There are two ways in which you can let us know that what we're doing here is making a difference somehow. One, you can leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or in Podchaser. Just head on over to dre.show forward slash rate. You can find that link on this episode's description below. The other way you can show your support of the work we do is to sign up to receive a free copy of my book on stem cell therapy. You can do that by heading on over to dre.show forward slash book. And again, you can find that link also on this episode's description. Taking action on either one or both of these is greatly appreciated. Your comments and support helps us know that we're making a difference and it pushes us forward. Not to mention, your ratings allow us to be discovered by other people and continue growing and also bringing in more amazing guests to share their knowledge with us for free. But anyways, let's not keep you any longer. Here is my conversation with Paige Kinsella. And remember, you are on the highway to health and I'm your guide to get you there. Are you ready to live ageless? Want to discover alternative health choices, cutting edge nutrition, and fitness for the entire family? Welcome to Highway to Health Show with your host, Dr. E, the stem cell guy, where Dr. E helps you live ageless. And now, here's your host, Dr. E. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Highway to Health Show. I am joined today by Paige Kinsella, who is a holistic health coach and the creator of the blog ImperfectPage.com. She shares her physical, emotional, and spiritual healing journey after years of coping with an eating disorder, autoimmune disease, chronic people-pleasing, and codependency, just to name a few. She believes that these issues are very real for many people, and the scariest thing about them is that they are often invisible to the outside world. I completely 
completely agree with this, and I'm very interested to listen to what Paige has to share with us. So Paige, it's really a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, there are so many things that I think you will be able to share with our listeners. And honestly, I'm very excited to get started with our conversation. But first, why don't you just give us kind of like the Cliff's Note version of your health journey? You mentioned something about eating disorders and autoimmune disorders, for instance. Were these kind of like the beginning of your struggles with health or when did it all start? Yes, I would say my autoimmune disease would definitely be, actually have two, <laughs> would be the start of my major health concerns. When I was 11 years old, I first started to show symptoms of Raynaud's phenomenon. So my fingers and toes would turn white. And then as I got a little bit older, they began to turn purple. And it took a couple of years of just endless tests and feeling a little bit like a human pincushion and being taken to all these places when, you know, age 11 to 13, all you want to do is fit in. And I was really struggling with the process of trying to find out what would, quote, make me different or make me, I hate to say this word, but at that age, I felt almost effective as they were trying to find something that was wrong with me. So I got diagnosed with scleroderma when I was 13, uh, which anyone listening is not aware is an autoimmune of the connective tissues. And that was the beginning of my health journey. It definitely planted a seed of me feeling like there was something wrong with me and me feeling a bit betrayed by my body. And I definitely think that played into my eventual issues with disordered eating, which began when I was 18, my first year of college. And that's when the first time I think I had a health issue that there was some shame around, because there's this certain conception um, in the public that if you have an eating disorder, you're doing it to yourself. It's not really taken seriously as a mental health and emotional health issue, in my opinion, and my own experience, as a lot of other issues are. So I would say it started, my health issues began more in the truly physical side. And then that and other factors in my life, including perfectionism and people pleasing, which I'm sure we'll share more of during this call, during this podcast. I definitely think as I got older, it started to bleed over into an emotional and a mental space of health concerns. Yeah, it's crazy how kind of those things start snowballing one into another and you start seeing how common most of these things are and they go hand in hand with a lot of people. We recently interviewed someone as well, a lady who struggled for several years with eating disorders. And she was sharing something very similar to what you just shared with us about how people don't necessarily recognize it as a mental disorder. And there is this stigma that it's just you being irresponsible and just you not caring about yourself. Well, on top of that misconception, I'm, I'm not sure if she feels the same way, but I've definitely noticed that there is just a complete misconception around what eating disorders are about and also the population that's affected by them. Even the images I saw in my health books in middle school, and I've actually wrote an article for Recovery Warriors about this, was all, I mean, it was like, Amy is counting too many calories or Amy runs to the bathroom after she eats. And it just looked like this upper middle class 90% of the time, it was a white individual. And you, I mean, it explained what they were doing, but it was only in the context of they're trying to be thin and they're going about it in this way. And it wasn't until I was older and experienced myself in the thick of a true eating disorder, I was bulimic for many years, it just broke any thought of what it was about. Like, yes, the pressure to be thin and the pressure to fit in plays into it, but it's so much more about having some sense of control in your life. And turning to food as your coping mechanism in a very unhealthy way. It's crazy how, I don't want to say close-minded, but how unaware people are of it. And I think that the statistics, to be quite honest, are not accurate. I grew up in a fairly large suburb, but in Houston and in my group of friends, 
we never talked about it till we were older, but I found out four people out of, you know, a group of 20 or 30 people that we danced together, um, we did student council together, have struggled with an eating disorder. So the fact that four people in my own peer group, and they're telling me that only 1% of the population deals with it, it just doesn't quite add up to me because you have to admit you have the issue for it to be reported. And I think that there's so many people, but there's so much shame around it and so many false stigmas that people don't admit that they have a problem. And a lot of times they just struggle in silence and it's very upsetting. So that's one of the reasons I like to share the story so that people know they're not alone. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. I think shame plays a tremendous factor first in kind of like pushing people towards an eating disorder. And then there's the shame associated with having the eating disorder. So it's kind of like double shame. And I think, just like you very well said, that there is a very wide misconception about the whole thing because everyone who's outside don't necessarily understand it, number one. And number two, don't understand that it is properly a disorder that has deep psychological roots and that it's not just as simple as, well, just eat well, just don't throw up, just don't do this, right? So there's a lot of different things. Now, for instance, what was your day-to-day life when coping with all of this as you were growing up? So that began in college and I would say it shifted over time with how I coped with it day-to-day. It kind of surprised me. I've written about it pretty vividly because it's just completely burned in my brain the first time that I ever threw up. I was binging on Chinese food. I was cramming for finals, which is not unheard of in college. We used to order tons of food and cram together. But something about that day, it was every time I took a spoonful, it's because I was feeling an emotion I didn't want to feel. And rather than feel it, I just took another bite and took another bite and took another bite. And if I felt alone, if I felt out of place, I went to a school with people who were much, much, much more wealthy than I was. And a lot of them are very nice people, but I definitely felt like I didn't belong. And I felt like I was constantly having to be a chameleon in social situations and adjusted myself to make sure that I was, quote, likable by whoever I was with. And you can only keep that up for so long. So I was eating, 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 burying all these feelings, bottling them up. And then when I was just physically so uncomfortable and in pain, I ran to the bathroom and threw it all up. And as I'm sure you're aware, it releases all sorts of hormones and the guilt comes pretty quickly, but for a minute, you just have this rush of like, oh, I got rid of it. So it was just cram all the feelings down, get rid of it. And then it began this horrific cycle of every day I would wake up and today I'm not going to do it. Today I'm not going to binge and purge. Today I'm going to be able to eat a meal and then sit and not get rid of it. And I could not tell you hundreds of times I would say that. And the worst of my disorder was definitely those first two years where it was hard to get through a day without doing it. Later, I mean, it went on for probably 15 years. I even had a relapse not that long ago. And I wouldn't say full, depends what you would measure as a relapse. But the day-to-day, it becomes you having to make a choice of putting your health before the coping mechanism. And I will say a game changer for me with coping, since we're talking about day-to-day, was the first time a therapist ever told me that the disorder did something for you. So rather than make it an enemy, thank it for what it helped you get through, but recognize that it's not healthy and let it go. So that was the first time anyone ever didn't treat it like this evil thing. And it really relaxed me. But I was scared. I didn't really know who I was. I didn't know how to fit in. I was constantly an overachiever. I'm just checking boxes left and right, never giving myself an emotional outlet or a creative outlet. And that was, you know, if you cram things down long enough, they will find a way to come out. 
And the hardest thing I will say, I don't know if anyone you've spoken with has shared this as well, is if you're an alcoholic, I have very large family and there's a few cases of alcoholism in the family, you remove the drug and then you work to keep it. You cannot remove food. (laughs) You physically need food to survive. So it's a very, very long, somewhat difficult process because you can't eliminate your trigger. Exactly. That's just what I was thinking right now, because what you described is exactly what an alcoholic describes. It's exactly what a drug addict describes. It's exactly what a gambling addict describes, what a sex addict describes. All of these different addictions that have a very clear trigger in our brains with the release of certain hormones and neurotransmitters and whatnot. But all of them, you start a day and it looks like bright new day and you decide that you're not going to do that again. And you're absolutely right because everyone else can simply just remove the trigger. As a matter of fact, people around all of these other addicts will remove the triggers for them. And in your case, I'm sure it was actually the opposite. Like, we'll just have something healthy. We'll just have something like this. We'll just do a little bit of this. Well, you cannot go without eating. So that makes it so much harder. And this, we've had a conversation before with someone else as to why it is so difficult. Because like you very well said, you cannot remove that trigger. So it makes it incredibly difficult. Now, did you recruit, for instance, your friends, your close friends, your family? Were they aware of this going on? No, my parents found out because my cousin picked up on a pattern when I was visiting family for Thanksgiving. And at the time was just humiliated, but also very grateful to her looking back. But she confronted my parents They tried to tell me I couldn't go back to school. It was obviously leading up to winter break in college in the US. You definitely have a pretty long break. And so they said, you're not going to go back. Well, I'm a fairly stubborn individual and I was paying myself for school through scholarships and financial aid. I was like, what are you going to (laughs) do? You can't, you know, keep me here. There's nothing that I was relying on them for. So I went back and it was honestly like trying to break a cycle made of steel with like willpower made of feathers. So it was a day-to-day struggle. It actually was a bit relieving that they knew, but they also were not equipped to... I wouldn't say I was raised in a house where therapy was not something that was ever... They didn't demonize it, but it certainly wasn't something we did as a family. The mental health arena was not an area that my parents really discussed. They grew up in the kind of families where if you complain about something, it's like there's starving kids in the world, get over it. (laughs) You just didn't, didn't share those kinds of things about your feelings. So I... I don't know. I went back to school and it was just a, okay, I'm going to do this every day. And every day, if I could get a little further into the day without having an episode, I would just have to be excited about that progress. But one thing I will say that it wasn't until I experienced it firsthand that I actually became very sympathetic towards, or empathetic, I guess, towards addicts because the concept of recovery being linear is just laughable. (laughs) So I would have, you know, take one step forward and five steps back. But at the end of 10, 15 years, I finally was making progress, but it wasn't something I was instantly able to fix. And one thing that with diet culture, that's very frustrating, even in the functional medicine sphere, when I finally found functional medicine, which helped tremendously with my autoimmune disease as I got older, a lot of the diets recommended in functional medicine are hyper restrictive. And so I went all in on an AIP diet. And I don't think that that diet causes an eating disorder, but I already had an eating disorder. So to put me in the position where you can't eat grains, you can't can't eat this, you can't eat that. Like I basically could eat nothing but vegetables. And that 
just triggered me to the nth degree. So it becomes difficult when you're dealing with health issues on top of an eating disorder, because what you're told that you have to do to be healthy is going to trigger the most unhealthy behavior you have. And so it's this constant balance between I want to make healthy decisions, but I don't want to deny myself to the point that I go back down that road. Very long winded answer. Because yeah, on the one hand, you do have that eating disorder. And then the other hand, you're still struggling with an autoimmune disorder, which is probably most people listening to us. And if they don't know this, now they do, is greatly triggered by what we eat. I mean, I constantly say that the number one source of inflammation and of pretty much anything for us as human beings is what we're putting in our mouths, right? So being unable really to control these binges and to control what you're currently eating while trying to also manage an autoimmune disorder makes it so much harder. But one thing I'm trying to understand is obviously, well, in your family, you couldn't really get a lot of support, but you're in college. And what about your friends, any close people, any counselors, any advice that you could find? Because I find it shocking. There's a lot of people that go through something similar and they tell kind of like the same story. No, I can't stress enough the shame around it. That's part of the reason that I decided to write about it and share my story because you don't want to tell people because you don't want to label yourself as, quote, that person. I would say that girl, but I've met men who have had eating disorders, and there's even more shame that they've experienced, unfortunately. And you just don't want to be labeled. You don't want to be that girl, Amy, in my sixth grade health book, that they just portray you as this weak person. I have two degrees. I work in finance in New York. I am extremely driven. And not to say that makes me any better than anyone who feels or hasn't accomplished those same things or doesn't have the same goals as I do, but you don't want to be thought of that way. And I think that that stereotype is just, to be blunt, just garbage. Most people I've met, especially ones with bulimia for some reason, and I know there's some science behind that, are very perfectionistic, very driven, make excellent salaries, work for very large corporations or whatever, they're very successful in whatever field they do pursue. So it's so hard to drop that guard and say, I'm not okay. And I'm dealing with it in a way that is hurting me because they don't want to be perceived as weak and they don't want to be a statistic. So it's difficult. I mean, I now I'm actually at a point in my life where I'm in my thirties. My friendships are a lot deeper. I don't allow uh, as much as I can in my life anymore, toxic friendships or one-sided friendships. So I only am friends with people at this point in my life that I would feel comfortable sharing. But in your early 20s, it's not, it's just not reality. So I, at the time, just constantly put up a mask. I see. I see. Now, I'm trying to imagine and picture your situation as the whole thing, contrary to what most people and even a lot of the outside world, not just a physician would see it like, which is just either an eating disorder, either an autoimmune disorder or one thing or the other, right? But as a person coping with all of these things. Now, on top of it all, and you mentioned something that kind of like made me think about this. You mentioned something about discovering functional medicine. Did you by any chance have your health concerns dismissed by other professionals before finding functional medicine? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> yes. So I got diagnosed with my second autoimmune disease when I was 24. So I just started to get really lethargic. My hair was falling out. But that had already started to happen, but it just increased significantly as I was in college. The eating disorder did not help either. I went in and was diagnosed. At the time, I was just told I was hypothyroid. So I was put on levothyroxine, told that's all I needed to do, and dismissed. And over the years, they increased my dose every single time I got a blood test for several years to the point where I said, is this even working? I shouldn't have to increase my dose every single time. And then I just started doing my own research. 
uh, definitely went down some like WebMD rabbit holes at some points, but I suddenly came across the whole field of functional and then integrative medicine and ended up going to see a physician and she sat me down and said, so you have Hashimoto's. And I said, what's Hashimoto's? And she just kind of smacked her hand against her face and said, hypothyroid is the state your body's in, but Hashimoto's is what's happening. She's like, your immune system's attacking your thyroid. And I had never been told that. I didn't really think of it as an autoimmune condition. So it kind of blew my mind that that was the first time someone had said that to me. And that was actually the first time they ever tested the antibodies. Um, I had only ever had my TSH tested. So I won't lie, there was anger for a while because the fact that I already had an autoimmune condition, I wish that I had been having this tested many years prior. I think I would have saved myself from a lot of the damage that's already been done to my thyroid. And as you're aware in master gland, it it controls a lot in your body. And it explained a lot of my brain fog, my difficulty staying in shape. I was always an athlete, but I always struggled a little bit with maintaining the physique that I liked. And obviously the eating disorder didn't help there either. But I had to learn to be my own advocate is the best way to explain it. I don't like to go in and, and speak to physicians as if they don't know what they're doing. I mean, I would get annoyed if someone came and tried to tell me how to do my job and correct me. But I definitely stand up for myself and I ask questions I have had physicians laugh at me when I told them that I was exploring functional practitioners to see if I could address some of my issues with diet and lifestyle. I've had to learn to get a thick skin when people make comments about that. And it's been eye-opening with my family. They were at first pretty resistant to me doing anything that wasn't in line with what the quote top physicians in the field would tell me to do. But over time, they've seen drastic improvements just in my, my brain fog is much better. I am able to just maintain a much healthier lifestyle now. And it's interesting, like, A, I've learned to have a thick skin because at the end of the day, I care more about my health than what some comment or a random comment that someone's going to make. And then B, I just, it's a testament to that approach, how much just making certain adjustments in my life has improved my health and also helped with my mental health, to be honest. Yeah, of course. I mean, come to think of it, I don't know how dare you think that diet and lifestyle can fix it if, you know, there's medications for all those things. So here's the thing, and I talk about this semi-regularly here on the podcast and before you know, I used to run a stem cell clinic, I'm still very involved in regenerative medicine and it's a new field and it is almost anti-pharmaceutical in a way that the way stem cells work is that they help your body heal so that you know we see a lot of patients who are able to get off their medications. We don't take them off their medications, but they're able to do that. And so it's not very well received by a lot of doctors and they're kind of like turning corner on that and they're starting to understand all those things. But it really shocks me how many doctors are so quick to dismiss the collective knowledge that is out there to dismiss any healing modality that is not typical Western allopathic medical, you know, peer reviewed and whatnot. And I'm saying this as a traditionally trained MD. I had to learn this the hard way after a lot of patients came in, and I probably was for a while that same doctor that laughed at you. I have to say it, it probably, you know, some of those patients, there are patients out there saying, well, this idiot laughed at me when I brought it up. And I was that idiot for a while. But then you start listening to patients and they come in and they tell you like, well, I did this and it worked. And you kind of like brush it off. And then another one says, and another one says, another one until you suddenly start saying, well, there's probably something more here. And, you know, obviously then we started training and learning more and it is a growing field of functional medicine in general, but it's still so disliked by the traditional medical establishment. And it's shocking the amount of patients that I talk to who are just completely 
dismissed just like you were yeah. because a doctor cannot take that a patient might dare go to Google and figure out what's going on with him or her or try to figure out an alternative treatment that won't give him or her the side effects that they can cope with or try to improve their health because in the end, that's what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned to a physician that I had done ozone therapy. <laughs> that did not go over well. <laughs> so. I advocate to anyone who asks me and tell them what has helped me. And I realize everyone's bio-individual and things may work differently. And I keep that in mind. But I've learned in certain situations, like if I have to go, like I sprained my ankle and I went to urgent care and they were asking me a few questions that I was like, I'm going to keep certain things (laughs) to myself. Which is a problem in and of itself. Because I mean, honestly, when I hear those things, I totally understand where you're coming from. For instance, when we were dealing with the autistic community, right? A lot of parents with children with autism would come down for treatment and they're used to hiding a lot of things from doctors when they had to go see a doctor, like you very well said, urgent care or anything like that. They hide certain things from them. So we had to tell them like, no, 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 it's okay. I'm not going to roll my eyes. I'm not going to, but I need you to tell me everything because, you know, at the time we were going to do, for instance, a bone marrow aspirate so that we could get the stem cells. We were going to put a child under sedation. There were certain things that, you know, we kind of needed to know just to make sure that, you know, that we were prepared. But that in and of itself is a problem that the medical establishment is creating because instead of us building trust in our patients, we're kind of forcing them to kind of like go sideways, kind of like parents when they're super strict. What happens is that, you know, kids figure out a way and they don't tell them things. And then they wonder like, well, you don't tell me things like, sure, because whenever I share something, you get right back at me. So I think that that attitude in the medical establishment is doing everyone a disservice. And I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Obviously, I probably had nothing to do with it. But but still, you know, I kind of like feel for my peers that, you know, I feel sorry that there are so many patients, so many people in the same shoes of yours that had to go through the exact same things. And that's something that we need to stop. Now, when you started doing, you know, functional medicine and probably some alternative, what types of alternative treatments have you explored? Ooh, where to start? Acupuncture has been amazing for me. And it's very interesting to me too, that I embraced it because as a child, I was deathly afraid of needles. My autoimmune disease got me over that real quick because I stopped, I got tired having a fit every eight weeks when I had to get blood taken. So acupuncture has been amazing. I will say I had to try a few different practitioners before I found one that I really connected with because I like to ask questions and I just like to kind of understand what they're doing. And so that was enjoyable for me. I've done Reiki, it's like energy work, I do what you would consider medical massage on a regular basis because I have autoimmune and inflammation of my connective tissues. I get very tight and very uncomfortable if I don't kind of roll out uh, with one of the lacrosse balls, or I think they have balls that are made for it now, but I just buy lacrosse balls and roll out my muscles or go to get a massage. I've also practiced or I've visited an Ayurvedic practitioner. Basically, my perspective is I try not to hone in on one modality and decide this is going to cure everything. And this is great. I just really have taken something unique away from all of those different experiences. And specifically Ayurveda, it really taught me to kind of go inward and connect with myself. Um, I practice yoga and meditation. Those are probably the two biggest game changers I had. I was a just... All I ever did my whole life was accomplishment boxes, just check the box, check the box, keep moving. And I would wonder why I was so worn out and so exhausted. And the health issues, I almost feel like were a blessing in disguise in some ways, because if I didn't have those issues, I never would have tried yoga, tried meditation, explored, you know, spirituality or connecting to something. And it's really changed my life in so many mental and emotional ways to explore those, not just physical. 
Yeah, I'm sure it has. For me as well, and I've brought this up before, I've been doing meditation for a while and it totally makes a difference. I have a very short fuse. Uh, people say that I'm very, also very perfectionist and very high standard. So when people are around me, I lose my patient very easily. And meditation has helped me tremendously. It, it, it makes a huge difference. And it's funny when you're trying to explain to someone who's, you know, who hasn't done it or is not knowledgeable and they want to get into it because they think that, well, how can I do it the best? How can I, you know, meditate harder? How can I meditate better? Like, no, you just relax, <laughs> chill, and, and, and you just do it, right? And it makes a tremendous difference. And going back, before we move on, going back to what you mentioned about acupuncture and all these different modalities, you are absolutely right. I have a good friend of mine who's an acupuncturist, and that's what he would tell people when somebody came in and like, well, I've tried acupuncture before, but it doesn't work. Like, well, you know, it's not that the needles work or not work. It's just that it all depends on what the practitioner was trying to do and how they were treating you because it all depends on where they put the needles and the kind of energy and all these different things. And these are things that most medical, most Western trained doctors would immediately dismiss. But I do think there's an important element in it. And what I normally tell them, because they're quick to say it's a placebo effect. And I just spoke about that just two or three episodes ago with someone about the placebo effect. Like, what do you care? If the patients are doing better, what do you care if the needles did something physical or just in their head? They're feeling better. They're happier. They're enjoying their lives. So <laughs> why are we so upset about whether it's the needles or not the needles, whether it's the pill, the sugar pill or not the pill? Happens a lot with homeopathy and the essential oils and all those things. You know, you can be very easy to dismiss that. Well, there's no research. Sure, but there's a bunch of people who are saying that it works and you know that it works for them. So why not let them try it? But let's switch gears a little bit. You mentioned before we started recording, and I mentioned that in your introduction as well, about perfectionism. And you've brought it up once or twice about being very driven and all these things. But do you feel that this perfectionism has affected your health? Oh, absolutely. It definitely played a major role in the eating disorder. And I think that it kept me from looking into or really embracing the healing process. I still struggle with having all or nothing thinking. I'm the type of person, like I talked about recovery not being linear, that did not jive with me for a long time. I wanted to be able to do steps ABC and get my gold star and move on with it. And to be able to learn to have self-compassion and know that if you stumble, it doesn't mean that it's over and you can't keep walking. And I've had to learn to embrace very small successes and set little goals and daily goals. And I'm more the type that's like, I want to get an MBA. And I just don't even look up until and that happened until I was finished with business school. I'm like, why am I tired and worn out and a little bit you know, anxious and depressed? And I've had to learn that it's okay not to be perfect at everything and to beat myself up over it. It was really just, I guess the way it's almost like you pleading, like, please love me because I hate me. So I had such a warped sense of self-worth if I had any at all, and I had no self-compassion. And I made up for it by constantly jumping through hoops to try to get everyone to like me and love me and want to be my friend. And, and I'd get all these awards and accolades. And not to say that they're not meaningful. Obviously, I went to grad school, and I'm very appreciative of academia. I love those accomplishments, and I respect everyone else who goes after them. I wasn't going after them for the right reason. And it was just constantly trying to have external validation to make up for what I didn't have internally. And my eating disorder was the like supreme manifestation of that. 
Yeah, we see that so often when people pursue this, all these tough and difficult degrees to get. And suddenly they find themselves with a degree in their hands and a life that they don't like because they never stopped and thought, what is this degree going to do for my life? And we see that a lot with doctors and we see that a lot with lawyers. And, you know, they kill themselves for years and they manage to get into law school and they go to law school and they manage to pass the bar. And then they practice for three months before they realize, what the hell am I doing here? The same thing happens pretty much in every other sense for people who just go for an MBA because they want to have an MBA or because it's the next logical step and we're not stopping and thinking. But going back to perfectionism, and you brought something up that I was just listening to it this morning about self-compassion. And the thing about it, and one thing that I was listening to this morning that really clicked with me is when you see someone on the street struggling or failing at something, you don't go and you beat on them when they're, when they're down, right? And you don't go and you say, you're disgusting and you're fat and you're awful and you're horrible. And I don't, how can you do this? And you know, you're a disgrace. But we say that to ourselves all the time. Oh yeah. If I had a megaphone to my thoughts, people would think I was insane. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. So the thing is the way we talk to ourselves, we would never talk to anybody else. And we need to realize that we're the first ones that we need to be compassionate with. That we're also talking about in order to say, I love you, you first need to say I. And that's the first part of it. So first you need to learn how to love yourself and how to be compassionate with yourself. And I think that also is a very, very important trigger of a lot of these different behaviors and, you know, obviously driven by perfectionism and all of these things. So it is very important that you brought it up. But Continuing a little bit with the same conversation, and you mentioned something about mental health. Um, besides the healing modalities that you've shared about, you know, acupuncture and Ayurveda and all these things, what types of therapies or workshops or things like that that you've done that you've probably recommend to others that are that are going through similar struggles? So one type of therapy that I found very beneficial, and I've appreciated all talk therapy, but there was one point where I felt like I had intellectualized and spoken about things so many times. And I was like, but I still don't feel like I'm letting them go. I'm just discussing them at a high level. So EMDR, I believe eye movement desensitization. I forget exactly what it stands for. I apologize. But EMDR therapy, so it mimics the movement your eyes make or mimics the, I guess, connections between the two hemispheres of the brain that you have during sleep. It was very interesting to me. I had a therapist presented to me as an option to just release a lot of repressed memories, issues that were negative triggers for me. And what blew me away is as I've had, I've had both types, they've used their fingers and kind of an almost a hypnotic <laughs> movement move from left to right. And I follow their fingers with my eyes, or I've had it where they gave me two sensors that would buzz in my left hand and my right hand. And you'd started by picking a very calm, safe place that you would go back to, because you're bringing up a lot, a lot of to get super scientific, a lot of junk <laughs> that is really going to kind of rock you emotionally. The beach has always been my safe place. So that's what I would kind of set. And then you pick a memory that's especially triggering. And you think of the thought you have based on that memory. And mine always came back to I'm not enough. I would say all these lengthy statements, but every time I would go deeper and deeper and deeper, it just came down to I'm not enough, like not good enough, not smart enough, not rich enough, not enough. And I would pick a memory and then you just kind of follow the string unintentionally through your brain and bring up all it just the amount of memories that popped up that I had no association with this initial memory 
It would bring up things from when I was a kid. It brought up things from when I was working after college. It brought up relationships I hadn't thought about in years. It brought up very vivid conversations with my parents. And it was the craziest feeling because after doing this, I don't quite know, I want to say 30 or 45 minutes, you then go back to that safe place. And she told me to kind of think about a color. She was very big into like color therapy. And I can tell you now that a memory from seventh grade that I used to just block out because if I brought it up, I would get angry and uncomfortable. I can now think about, and I remember it vividly just the way I did before, but it doesn't have that trigger anymore. I can think about it as that happened. It was a long time ago. There's no emotion there. And I've had that therapy maybe five or six times. And I highly, highly recommend it to anyone dealing with the perfectionism, the people pleasing. And it brought up things that I just never in a million years would have thought to discuss with a therapist. And it just allowed me this release so I could let go and really move forward. Now, what was that about? We didn't go a lot into the people pleasing. So how did you kind of like find out about that? Or how would you describe that? I mean, I know, obviously, and everyone listening knows what people pleasing is. But when did you realize that it was a problem? And I ask it this way, because a lot of the moms that we work with, they don't realize that this is their life at one point, that they're just there to please others and to be of service to others and they're bending over backwards. So when did you realize that it was being a problem? I would say I had little inklings here and there that some people just seem more comfortable in their own skin than I did. And I was envious of that. But I will say I was having dinner after I finished my MBA, so a little over five years ago. And someone asked me, well, what are you going to do now with all this new spare time? And I just sat there and I was like, I don't even know what I like to do anymore. Like I grew up dancing, so I always wanted to take a dance class, but I basically had no personality left outside of my academic duties and accomplishment lists and all the stuff I wanted to just, you know, box checking check this accomplishment onto the next one. And I panicked and I was like, I don't even know. This sounds really hyperbolic, but I was like, I don't even know who I am anymore. I don't know what I want to do with my time. I don't know if I even want to have this finance job. I don't know what to do. And I didn't really know who to open up to about that. And I was 30 at the, almost 30 at the time. So I just wasn't quite sure what to do. And it made me kind of go down this, I don't know. I'm a, academic by nature. So I just started Googling and researching. And when I first saw the term just people pleasing, like I know, obviously, it's a very simple phrase. But when I realized there are books written about it, and there's people who spend their whole life feeling like they hide behind a mask, it was like, Oh, my God, I'm not the only person. I think I just convinced myself like, it's just me. I'm just being ridiculous. Like that lack of self compassion that we talked about. I just assumed it was all in my head. And when I started to realize there's all these people who deal with it, and I had been spending my adult life just twisting myself into a pretzel trying to please everybody so that they all liked me because I didn't like myself. And it was eye-opening and it definitely the perfectionism, I would feel kind of played into that. Yeah, that's why I wanted to ask you because everyone knows what people pleasing is, but does everyone really realize how it can really affect you and get into your life? Now, do you think, would you consider that at this point, you've been able to heal this relationship with food and with your own and internal struggles? I would say I'm much better now. I'm in a much better place, but it's still something I have to be conscious of. It's not the kind of situation where it's not like grad school. I want to get an MBA. I do this, I do this, I do this, I get my MBA done on to the next thing. It's a conscious decision every day to live the way that I live more mindfully. And I slip up all the time. 
<laughs> I'm human and I will make a choice that I regret later. And it's learning to have that self-compassion in the moment. Like when I have that critical voice go on the megaphone in my head, taking a moment and breathing and knowing that that's not true, whatever it's saying. So I wouldn't say I'm there. I'm much happier. I live a much more fulfilled life. And I went to, I think I mentioned earlier, uh, integrative nutrition school. So I coach clients who I'm very honest with them and say, I'm not perfect. I'm not going to give you the blueprint for how to be perfect. I embrace the fact that I'm not perfect. And it actually helps me relate to people more to admit that it's an ongoing process. I'm not preaching from an ivory tower. I'm like, I've been in the mud. I know what you're going through. <laughs> and I go from there. Yeah, it allows you to empathize. So tell me a little bit about that. That's where I wanted to get to. What are you currently working with clients on? Yeah, so I went to the Institute for Integrative Nutrition or IIN. So I'm certified as a health coach. That sounds really broad, but I really, after working with a few clients, realized what I focus on and the people that I connect with the most are those who are struggling with similar issues, autoimmunity, the perfectionism, people-pleasing, just monotony and disordered eating or an eating disorder, which are two different things, but one typically leads to another. And it's been really shocking to me. I put that out there as three different things. And the amount of people I have worked with that are experiencing all three, very similar to my own story, has just blown my mind. And I've been able to work with them on letting go of those all or nothing thoughts and setting goals. And obviously, I have a lot of training around uh, different nutritional practices, but I don't push it as a kind of a dogma about diets, because clearly with my own background, I don't think there's any such thing as a perfect diet or a way to live that's better than anyone else. Like I still occasionally eat things that I know are bad, because if I don't once in a blue moon, let myself have it, then you obsess about it. And once you have it, you're like, Oh, okay, that was good. But moving on, <laughs> it's just it doesn't give it the power over you that it once had. So that's what I do. I coach currently in my spare time. And I also continue to write on the blog. And I love being guests on podcasts like this to connect with people out there who are going through similar things. Because one of the things you mentioned in my bio early on, the hardest thing about these issues is if you see me walking down the street, you wouldn't have the slightest clue that there's any health issues or anything going on. And it's so easy to just say you're fine and assume that everyone else has it together and you're the only one that doesn't. And that's kind of my biggest goal is like, we don't all have to pretend everything's fine. And there are other people who are dealing with the same things. Exactly. It's something that is so common right now when we start hearing so much about teenagers that are committing suicide, that are having all these addictions, that are doing all these terrible things because they think that they're the only ones having sad thoughts or having bad days or having all these different things, not just because they're walking down the street, but when they look at their friends' Instagram or Snapchats or whatever it is, and they don't realize that people put their life's highlights on Instagram. They're not going to put the boring stuff. And we do boring stuff 95% of the time. We put the 5% that is kind of like cool. And that's what people see. So when we start romanticizing everybody else's life, that's when we really start feeling that void of, wow, I'm so inadequate. I am, like you very well said, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not fun enough. I'm not pretty enough. So I think that's something that needs to be addressed. Now, how do people start working with you? How do they find about you? Where are you normally? So I have, via my blog, I have a work, there's a page on my blog that you can contact me at. So it's imperfectpagepage.com. And if you wanted to connect with me directly via email, it's just page, my first name, at imperfectpage.com. So in case you're not sure, you'll know what my first name is by the end of this. And I also have an Instagram, same, at imperfectpage. So I put some stuff up on there. I'm not too heavy on social media for the very reason that you just shared. I think it's an incredible resource, but I also don't want to put anything out there that 
makes people feel less than. I try to be very real, but the majority of stuff I share is via my blog. And the most connections I've had with coaching clients are filling out a coaching form on my site. And then I connect with them directly. All right. Perfect. Perfect. Now, before we let you go, I always ask our guests, what are your top two or three pieces of advice, actionable advice that you can give to someone listening to us that just said, oh my God, I'm not the only one. I would say, so in regard, a couple things in regards to physical health, learn to be your own advocate. It doesn't mean that you have to go guns blazing into a doctor's office, but come with a notepad, come with the questions that you want to ask. Don't leave feeling like you were just kind of spoken at and it wasn't a conversation. You have the right as a patient to have a conversation and ask questions. And I would say advice from the mental and social perspective. I dedicate time every day for like two or three things that I hold pretty sacred. So I go for a walk every day, even when it's cold in New York. (laughs) I take time to meditate every day. And if you start letting that slip, it's not to make you feel like you should punish yourself if you don't do it. It's to make sure you hold that time for yourself. And I know that I'm off if I don't have those things. And I'm more likely to turn to those negative coping mechanisms if I don't have the time to do the things that I hold sacred. And none of us are ever going to just stop caring what people think. We're human beings and it's there. But learning to kind of keep your blinders on when you're working on yourself and working on your things, there's a sense of community and you want to connect with people and you want to be open. But like you were saying about Instagram, learn to focus on your lane because there's so much stuff going on in the lanes to your left and right that you don't realize to just assume something based on the exterior. It's just making assumptions and it's going to make you feel worse. So that's the one thing that I've really taken away is to focus on my healing and focus on what I'm working on and help the people that I work with do the same because it keeps you from just getting caught up in the comparisons and it doesn't help. Those are my three, I guess, big (laughs) pieces of advice. That is perfect. Thank you so much. Now, once again, I do want to say that we've spoken about this before, but I think your openness, your honesty, your transparency in this is something that is very well needed. And I do want to acknowledge you and recognize you for sharing that so openly here with all of us. So thank you so much for coming on and for sharing so openly. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I really appreciate that. It's every time someone tells me something like that, it motivates me to continue to work on this. And to share the story. Yeah. And I'm sure you're, you know, a lot of the times we don't realize it when we're doing these kind of things, but we're having an impact on a lot more people than we hear back from. It's great to hear back from people that when you have an influence on them, when you're making positive impact, but a lot of the times we do have this impact on a lot of people. So do keep going because like you very well said, and something like what you're working with, there is this big stigma. There is a lot of shame. People have a hard time accepting it. People have a hard time recognizing it and calling out for help. So I think it's very important that someone like you, who has been in the trenches, who knows what it's talking about, who knows what that experience is like, can come out and say, you know what, there's light on the other side of the tunnel and this is the way. And sure, we're going to stumble along the way and we might fall but I'm here for you. So thank you so much for that. For everyone listening, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I certainly have. I think this has been a great conversation. I look forward to seeing you here next week. This is the Highway to Health Show. I'm your host, Dr. E, the Stem Cell Guy. Thank you for listening to Dr. E's Highway to Health Show, helping you learn the science of living ageless. Did you enjoy the show? Please like, share, and subscribe where you listen to podcasts. Dr. E wants to hear from you. Go to dre.show 
Again, that's dre.show. Until next time, this is Dr. E's Highway to Health, helping you live ageless. This has been episode 28 with Paige Kinsella. If you enjoyed our conversation and would like to learn more, make sure to check out the show notes and the links to everything we mentioned in this episode's description. Before we go, remember to also take a moment and leave us a rating. And if you're feeling especially generous, also a review, you can do that by heading on over to dre.show forward slash rate. Thank you all once again for tuning in. I look forward to seeing you here next week. I'm Dr. E, the stem cell guy. You are on the highway to health and I'm your guide to get you there.